0: We drove the Ute up to the Central Coast on a beautiful sunny day to talk with Dave Jensen. Dave is a former army officer who came to the realization that the things of this world, which he likens to salt water, will never be enough to satisfy. After becoming a father at just 17 years old, Dave joined the army for an income and lived a turbulent and destructive life for many years. Jesus broke into his heart in a remarkable way and turned Dave's path right around, showing Jesus was the way, the truth and the life. Dave's story will resonate with many and it's a privilege to share it with you. I'm Carl Faze and this is my interview with Dave Jensen. Dave, when you were 17 you had a conversation with your father who had just become the Archbishop of the Sydney Diocese. What did you tell him? I had the uh,
1: opportunity to sit down with Dad after dinner and uh, summed up all my courage and said, Dad, I've got some news. Uh, My girlfriend is pregnant. Wow. Yeah. How did that change your life? Um, For my life in particular, fatherhood changes all of us, but the backstory of my life was particularly um, powerful to me. My my family was very religious. My my dad had just become Archbishop. Um, I had been chasing girls and doing all these things for years and years, but hiding it and lying about it. It was all deeply secret. Uh, And so for me to sit down and tell him uh, my girlfriend is pregnant meant that not only was I saying, hey, I'm going to have a baby as a teenager, as a young man, um, but also I've been having sex. I've been sleeping around. Um, And so for me, it wasn't just a a change of, hey, I'm now going to be a dad. I need to take responsibility for my life. But actually, uh, the truth about how I've been living is, is going to be revealed. How did your dad respond? Uh, it was both. My dad and my mum were there, and they they uh, my mum put her head in her hands like this. My dad kind of looked wistfully out the window, and my mum stood up and, and walked back to the pantry and sort of went ugh. Oh. And then they both sat down and they looked at each other, and they said, "Are you okay? Is she okay? What can we do? How can we help?" What can we pray for? What does she need? Um, and can't, I remember that like it was yesterday. The, this incredibly powerful reaction. Yeah. Um, an immediate feeling, um, but then choosing to respond in a different way, which has stayed with me for yeah, a long time. How did you feel? Relief. I'd been incredibly nervous. I didn't know what they would say. Um, I was still incredibly nervous about what was gonna come. Um, and with good reason, as a a young dad. Um, But just the assurance and the relief of, hold on, my parents' faith and my parents' convictions, they're not just for the good times. Um, They're for every time. They don't bend and shake. Uh, They're always here. Um, And I felt safe.
0: Did you call yourself a Christian then? Yeah, I did. I
1: think... um, I had a a faith and understanding that there was a God. He was real, that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. Um, But as I looked at other Christians, and I saw their passion and their their real love for Jesus, um, there was a part of me that knew actually, that's not me. Mm. So I I knew it was theoretically true in my mind, but I knew in my heart, um, probably deep down, if you'd really dug in, I would have had to say, if that's what a Christian is, if those people, that's Christianity, that's not me. I don't have that. Yeah. Was it automatic that you were going to get married or was that something you had to go through? No, it wasn't automatic. Um, my uh, girlfriend at the time and I had, had a bunch of conversations, um, about the baby before we told anyone. And then, um, a bunch of decisions and I, I praise God, I praise God for his work uh, in my life that we made the best decision ever. Um, but then after that, I think I felt a real sense of um, uh, obligation to step up, to be a man. Mm. And for me in my mind, with my background, I, I thought, well, what this looks like is marriage. I-, I need to step up. So it wasn't my parents or her parents. Um, it was something that I thought, oh, I should do this. Yeah. I want to do this, yeah.
0: Then the armed forces became
1: a part of your life. Why was that? So fast forward a few years, I'm there. I- I'm a father with a little girl. I got a wi- I'm married at this stage, got a wife. Um, but I couldn't hold down a job. I'd gone to university and bummed out. I was terrible. I'd ended up being a furniture removalist, but um, I I had the the body of a twig. I couldn't lift anything. It was terrible, terrible at it. Um, One day I was catching a bus and I saw on the side of the bus um, an advertisement for the army, which said, the army, the edge. And I honestly, Carl, I looked at this and I thought, the army, how hard could that be? (laughs) It can't be that hard, surely. So I I actually that day got that bus and I... Um, went to the recruitment office in the centre of Sydney City. Um, and I went in and spoke to a sergeant and I said, oh, I'd like to join. And he said, have you been to university? And I said, yes, I didn't pass, but he goes, good, you should be an officer. And I said, what's an officer? And he said, it's paid more. And I said, great. <laughs> and like many of our, our wonderful servicemen and women, um, I joined the army because I love my country. Um, but I also joined the army because I needed a job.
0: Yeah. And
1: I thought, hey, here's a a job I could do that I could be proud of, but that has security, um, that is well paid, um, so I could actually look after my family, not be dependent on my own family to to live. So it'd be
0: fair to say you didn't understand what the armed forces was really about. I didn't have the foggiest. What about your wife? No, no no idea. My
1: my wife um, uh, is Irish, uh, from County Donegal in Ireland. Um, so her knowledge of the army, uh, I mean, Northern Ireland and the army, these are very controversial backgrounds as, as we know, and, um, the Australian army, her knowledge of that was zero. Uh, and so her knowledge of what it meant to be an army wife, for example, was completely zero. In fact, when I ended up joining and I then discovered, Hey, this might have to result in me going overseas and getting shot at. And it might result in me having to live in different parts of Australia and, um, These things were all news to me. And that's the level of intelligence you're dealing with here, Kyle. I I really thought, oh, this will be a nine-to-five job. Um, And it wasn't until I joined that I realised it's anything but. It's actually not just a job, it's an identity, an all-consuming thing. So how did the Army change you, Dave? I joined the Army as an undisciplined, um, lazy, uh, unfocused... Uh, Bum, I guess. You were a fabulous recruit, clearly. Perfect recruit. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember stepping out the bus, you know, you're on the bus with a bunch of the other recruits and you step out and you're met by a wall of sergeants with their slouch hats on. And we think slouch hats are this admirable thing in Australia. They are, but they're also a very intimidating thing, which you, you know, they they create this persona. And you meet these men, these platoon sergeants, and suddenly you realise this isn't a joke anymore. This is real. and you're not in Kansas anymore. This is going to turn ugly quickly because yeah. they start screaming at you as immediately as you get off the bus. Um, I think for the first six to eight weeks was the time in the army where they, they shave your head and you learn to march and learn to, and you think, oh, they're just getting you to do things, but that's not what they're doing. They're rebuilding you as a person, a person who will take orders, a person who will listen, a person who will obey and act. Um, and they're very good at it. Mm. And so. By the time I came back from my initial boot camp, which is 12 weeks long, um, I was a completely different person. I thought differently. Um, I suddenly had discipline and drive. Um, I thought critically about myself, but actually also about others. Um, and those ethos, that ethos of the army, I actually think is a wonderful thing and uh, and certainly stayed with me in my time. But in addition to that, th- there's a part of the army which is ugly. Mm. Um, and that's generally concerning the fact that, uh, for young men in particular, um, it's a very macho environment, chest beating. Um, you're always trying to big note each other and intimidate one another. Um, and it's also a, an environment which has a lot of uh, drinking, womanising, and violence. I'm not approved by the army hierarchy, but mm. it certainly just exists mm. within there, like a footy team all the time. That's your job. Yeah. Um, and so I went from a young guy from a Christian family who couldn't get up before 11, to suddenly being a guy a year later uh, who would be getting in fights in the pub every single week, um, who began to chase women a lot, even though I had a, a wife and children at home. And a guy who became very, very critical of everyone else around me, uh, who began to think uh, of myself as higher mm. than anyone else because I was in the army. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You had a second child. But that sort of lifestyle is not particularly good for a marriage, what happened? Um, the marriage was going badly,
1: uh, it was falling apart, and we decided to do something which I, I wouldn't recommend to anyone, which is to say, hey, let's have another baby, this, this might fix things. Um, but unfortunately and tragically, um, by the time my, my son was born, um, the marriage had dissolved, and. Um, a week after my son was born, my battalion uh, was deployed to East Timor right. um, for I think it was eight months with, with two days notice. It was a quick reaction force and um, I remember sitting there holding my child and speaking to my wife and agreeing with one another, this is it, it's over. And what it would look like when I got back, we didn't know, but it wouldn't be marriage, it would be done. Um, And so when I got on the plane to East Timor, um, it was realising that's the end of my marriage. That's the, the end of this chapter.
0: That's such a mix of emotions because A, you're deploying to go overseas into a war zone and you're walking away from marriage. How are you coping with all of that?
1: I got my head and I put it firmly in the ground and I just avoided it. I just couldn't think about it. It was incredibly painful when I would dwell on it. Um, So instead I threw myself into the deployment, which you have to do anyway, and that was actually helpful. Um, I threw myself into the situations and the circumstances around me. Um, I avoided thinking about home as much as possible. Uh, And even then when um, I got the news, I think a month or two into the deployment that my uh, wife was leaving back to Ireland with the children and taking the kids, Um, Carl, I'm ashamed to say that I I didn't care. I thought, okay, well that's life, moving on. And I had become so callous and so hardened um, of heart that actually there was a part of me that was relieved and thought, oh well, the the pain of our difficult marriage is over. And actually there was a part of me that was excited. The thought of, I can go home now in six months time Mm. and I can do what I want, whenever I want, however, with whoever I want and not have to lie anymore, I can just be me. This podcast is brought to you by the Ministry of Olive Tree Media. Our vision is to create a library of resources that tell the story of the game-changing message of Jesus. This interview was recorded for our latest documentary, Faith Runs Deep. Our other award-winning series, Jesus the Game Changer and Towards Belief, plus many other small group, church and school series are available on our Watch Plus platform for a small monthly partnership. As you partner with us, you not only get access to compelling video content and interactive discussion guides, but you also support the creation of more resources that help share the gospel message. To become a partner
0: and get access to Faith Runs Deep, visit olivetreemedia.com.au. I've spoken to a few people who are in the armed forces and I as a person would think you, you told you about to go to a war zone and I would feel kind of afraid of that concept but many people in the army is like bring it on Mate, is, is that the case yeah you're 100 right I remember being struck
1: by um in my early days in the army people spoke about deployments whether team Timor Afghanistan yeah. Iraq with excitement Well, oh. I remember sitting there I'm still in the mind of a civilian being like, what do you mean? Surely, surely we don't want to go to those places. Yeah. But um, the culture of the army is um, put in such a way as that's the goal, that's what yeah. you want to do. Yeah. And if you don't do that, it's like training for a game and never playing. Wow. Um, wow. So no, there's a real excitement that comes with it in regard to putting your skills to practice, but actually also that comes with it is the pride of yeah. serving your country, yeah. the pride of medals. Yeah. So one of the things that people are always worried about in the army is not having medals. Medals is a thing of showing i okay. experience. Like, okay, you yep. listen to me. Yep. And so when you deploy, you get medals, you get experience,
0: you get credibility. Was there any time that you were like really frightened when you were over there? Yeah. Uh, Timor was a funny conflict in the sense that, um, listen, truthfully
1: told, it was dangerous. They were, they were attacking each other, killing each other. Um, but for the Australians, we're there as peacemakers. And so we're trying to be really policemen in a military yep. sense. Um, but it wasn't without danger. Yeah. Um, Although much of it was sort of heightened by your own sort of sense of what was going on. Yep. We got shot at, I remember early on, we were on a patrol and um, there was a shot that fired and it would have landed you know, 10 metres above our heads. Um, and in the army, there's a thing called crack thump. And okay. the crack thump of a, a bullet is that you hear the bullet land yes. before you hear the thump of oh. it coming out of the roof. It's that quick. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, yeah. So you hear the ricochet, you hear the bump and yep. the thump. then. Um, and I remember that moment, come You know, twenty whatever it is, and you know, six foot four, full of muscle, all that sort of, pumped up, and realising at that moment, I want my mother. I want to go home. I don't want to be here anymore. This is, this is. Yeah. Oh my, I could die here. If that wow. was two minutes shorter, I could. Wow, die. wow. And, and but you don't tell anybody that. Absolutely not. <laughs> I was an was a commander, so yeah, um, yeah. You, you sort of, you have to keep it together. Yeah. Um, yeah. but internally no no it's like the duck on the water you know you're pedaling around inside wow. and of course wow. it does things to people intense yeah, yeah. um danger um and and timor no afghanistan and iraq of course yep. um but even i mean the, the rates of suicide of returned soldiers and stuff is tantamount to, yeah um hey listen danger does things to people I and mean, it can yeah. really mess people
0: up is there any issue around the things that you learn that make you succeed in the army does it sometimes make you fail in life, or is it the opposite? Carl, that, that is absolutely right.
1: Um, the way you're taught to relate um, to people within hierarchy, um, yeah. the way that you have expectations on other people, um, that, that they will do things and so on and yep. so forth, um, it has a huge effect. I'm um, Not just professionally, although, yes, army guys struggle to keep and hold jobs afterwards because they've been so... Um, taught structure and hierarchy that yep. they struggle outside of it. They can become very domineering. Yep. Um, but it also has an effect on the home life. Yeah. Um, that you're dealing in such an extreme environment where people yell and shout and swear at each other, just like it's nothing. Yeah. Um, that you become very accustomed to. Hey, this is this is how we relate. This yep. is what we speak to. Yep. And,
0: yep. and that affects, I think, every element of their life. Yeah. yeah. The whole chaplaincy kind of within weirdo- the within the armed forces. Interesting to see how that's developed. Is that talked about much, you know, as a soldier, or is that whole chaplaincy thing talked about much? Because it's... Nah.
1: Yeah. no. Nah, it's it's funny that the um, the idea of a Padre and a Chaplain, and all, regardless of denomination, all chaplains yep. are good Padres yep. in the Defence Force, um, to the average soldier, sailor, or airman, um, it's just completely normal. It's okay. not, yep. there's no thought of why should a man of faith or a woman of yep. faith be here uh, nothing like that. It's hey, the Padres are good. People generally think very warmly okay, about Padres and chaplains. The way, the only time that it doesn't work the way is if um, the chaplain can be uh, too uh, enthusiastically evangelistic sometimes okay. and yeah. unnuanced in the way that they do that. Yep. So you want to say yes, do it, but think, consider how yep. you do it. Yep. Um, or the other way, which is that the chaplain is so, um, you know, uh, so one of the boys one of the boys trying yep. too hard yeah uh, that actually you know that they, they're no use so the chaplain yep. really is a, a shoulder that someone can go to without judgment yep. and say hey yep. i'm having a, a problem with my boss a problem with my commander a problem with my soldiers a problem with and you know that this information will not be passed on can yep. i say within the military a highly um sort of hierarchical structure yep. It's yep. a unique role.
0: Yes. You don't have anyone else you can go to like that. Wow, that is um, interesting. And so, yeah. I, I, I was. Now they have a whole, lot, as you say, psychologists, counsellors sure. within the armed forces. One, of, one of our guests um, actually referred to the fact that those psych. So, you ever see the psychologists on the front lines? No, that's right. <laughs> does, that, does that make a difference? Like that, that it's actually important for the chaplain to be on the front line. Uh, I think it makes a
1: difference regarding credibility. Yep. And regarding the knowledge that these guys are here for me, because they're not carrying weapons, chaplains yep. are you know, not yep. allowed to carry weapons, um, and so the fact that the chaplain is present but unarmed yep. um, constantly in every theatre of war Australia's ever been involved in um, is, a, is a great thing to build up. Hey, these guys are for us. Yep. They're, they're not. They don't want anything from me. Yes. They're here for me. I don't need their tick of approval. They're just here for me. Yep. Unfortunately for psychologists and psychiatrists who are uniform members of the army. Okay, um, yep. Uh, often you need to see them uh, mandatorily, so you right. leave the country, you leave a deployment, and you yep. have to go see a psychologist to get approved to yep. uh, not need medication or any number yep. of things. Yep. Um, and so that becomes less a feeling of, I can't be honest here. Yeah, I can yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to tick a box. Yeah. So I need to, yep. and, and that's not the psychologist's fault it's not the army's fault it's just one of those impasses yes. that happens yeah. whereas the chaplain there isn't any of that yeah. now, if you express suicidal or criminal thoughts to the chaplain then yes it will go further but if you say listen I'm I hate my boss yeah, that's not going anywhere okay. that's between you if you say that to the psych that might go you know, okay. that, well it might not go to the boss but it'll be written down somewhere And yep. so there's a real special place in the hearts of the soldier for the chaplain Yeah. but I as a, as a As a non-believing, sort of nominal Christian in the army when I first joined, I was just really impressed by. I thought, ah, people don't hate
0: Christians. What were your goals at that point as you come back from that deployment? What were your goals in life? What did you want to be? What were you aiming at? My goals
1: are about success. um, But success. Uh, in a way which to other people might seem like failure, I suppose. My, my goals were about being um, being impressive to people physically, being intimidating. I, I wanted to, to be someone other people were afraid of mm. um, because I admired people like that and I wanted to be like that. I wanted to be um, a womaniser. I wanted to sleep with as many women as I could. Um, I wanted to be thought of as someone you didn't mess with no matter what. Mm. Um, Things like money and career and promotion, they meant nothing to me. It was actually all about reputation.
0: Um,
1: The the reputation that this is a guy who's good with the girls and a guy you don't mess with. Um, And I thought if I can do that, I didn't articulate it this way, but if I can achieve this, then I'll be living my good life. This will be the life that that I'm desiring
0: to live. So, Dave, when did it dawn on you that that goal, that vision for what you wanted, wasn't working? Uh, It took me over six years. Um, When
1: I got back from East Timor, I remember arriving uh, to an empty house, which had once been full of laughter and children running around, and I got back, and there was no one at the airport to meet me. I got back, and I got to this house, and it was empty um, after nine months. And I remember dropping my bags and thinking, right, that's it. I was devastated, a huge part of it, but I couldn't address it, I couldn't deal with it, I didn't know what to do with it. So I went out and I went and got drunk. Um, and that was the the nature of my life for the next six years. Um, I, I went to work, I'd save my money to go out, to get drunk, to chase girls, to fight. To, um, I, I loved playing rugby, um, so I worked very hard on that. I started to go to the gym, I wanted to be big, I wanted to be strong. Um, and I had the freedom to do just that. Mm. And so the next six years were really a story of me pursuing that satisfaction and that success in every avenue available to me. Um, But by the time I'm 28, um, as I'm now in a new place, I'm living in Darwin at this stage, and I just press press repeat on the same thing and start doing the same thing over and over again, um, I'm starting to become aware that I've achieved all the things I ever wanted And there's still a part of me that's deeply unhappy, a part of me that's deeply unsatisfied. Um, And I didn't have a a moment earlier on the year or or anything like this, but a dawning realization, I suppose, over the course of six to nine months, that um, if life is about achieving every goal I've ever set out to reach, and I've achieved every goal and I'm still unsatisfied, then there must be something more there must be something more to life than, than
0: what I'm doing. It's interesting day it, because there'll be a lot of young men in the Australian scene that would look at that picture of you and go, wow, that is living the dream. But the dream's hollow. I liken it to um,
1: drinking salt water. Um, you, it looks like water. It feels like water. Um, but no matter how much you drink of it, it's actually not replenishing you and, and giving you life. It's actually killing you. It's, it's doing the opposite effect. Um, and the truth is that for most men I knew, uh, this was life. This is what they were doing. Um, I, I was admired in the army. The people I knew me did look up to and I had that kind of reputation, everything I wanted, and most people I knew wanted the exact same thing. And today, now, years later, that's the exact same. Um, and yet it is a dead end. Mm. It is, it's a big cup of salt water it will never give you what you're looking for.
0: So how did you then explore another
1: option? My sister had given me a a laptop computer uh, for my birthday Uh, and I thought, um, her old laptop computer, and I thought, wonderful, pornography. I can finally have my own computer. Um, And for the first few months of having it, that's exactly what it was. Uh, But one day in October 2009, I woke up hungover and I went to YouTube and my sister, my twin sister, um, had always kept talking to me about Christian things and she'd preloaded a bunch of sermons into into YouTube, which I didn't know how to delete. I was so bad at technology. (laughs) Um, And these weren't big, profound sermons, just simple sermons about Jesus, about what he'd done. And so one morning, I woke up and I just found myself on YouTube and I clicked on one of these sermons. Um, and there I heard someone speak about Jesus's death and say that Jesus died for bad people, not for good people. And I've got to say, I probably had heard that 85 million times my entire life. But even though I'd heard it, I'd never listened. And for whatever reason that day, like for the very first time, it struck me um, that I wasn't a good person I was in deep, deep trouble. And I was in deep, deep trouble um, primarily not because I'd hurt people, although I had, and not because I'd lied, although I did that endlessly, and not because I'd cheated, although I did that endlessly. But I was a bad person because I'd spent my whole life ignoring God. Mm. And I became very, very afraid, realizing that, my goodness, if there is a God and He is there, I've spent my whole life ignoring Him. Um, Thankfully, because of my background, I, I knew some Christians. And one in particular came to my mind as someone to call, and that was a guy called Tim Booker. Um, Tim was an army chaplain, and he and I had been to East Timor together. He knew my dad, and he kept sort of friendly hassling me about church and stuff. And he was in Sydney, I was in Darwin. But I had his number and I called him up. And I said, Tim, I need to speak to you. Um, I'm terrified. I've been ignoring God my whole life. And I, I confessed to him everything. Not that I had to, I just wanted to. I said, here's been the reality of my last years. And he laughed and he said, Dave, I know. We all know. Everyone knows who you are. I said, Tim, what do I do? And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to know God. I want to know why I'm alive. I I, I want to be forgiven, but what do I have to do? And if you'd asked me at that moment, Carl, what I thought a Christian was, I would have said to you, listen, a Christian is someone who, who does good things and is a good person, because all my family were great people. And I started saying to Tim, so do I, start, go, do I need to start going to church? Do I need to start? And what Tim said to me over the next minute um, has changed my eternity, Carl. He said, Dave, your sin has not disqualified you from God's kingdom, it's qualified you for His grace. Jesus died for you, not because you're perfect, but because you're not perfect. But you cannot know God until you understand that Jesus has died for you. He's risen from the dead. And you need to ask for forgiveness and understand that Jesus is your only hope, not you. You need to take that crown off your own head and put it on the head of Jesus. And I said, Tim, how do I do that? I, I think, yes, it's true, but how do I do it? And he said, Dave, you need, to, you need to get real with God today. You need to pray to Him. And I said, Tim, I've prayed a hundred times before, mate, a million times. And I had when my wife had left, when, whenever I was scared, when someone shot at me, I prayed. And he said, I said, how do I know that God's listening? And he said, uh, pray until you know. Pray until you know He's heard you. And so um, I put the phone down and I leant on the side of my bed and I hadn't cried for a decade. And I cried out to God to forgive me. Did you feel it? I felt intense grief. Mm. I felt intense shame and regret as I considered everything that I'd done and the way that I'd treated God. And I felt uh, intense despair as I cried out to God realizing how pathetic I was and I actually fell asleep uh, in my tears. And Cal, I stand here before you today just to say that the next morning, there, there wasn't a shining light or an angel in my room. But as I awoke the next morning, I knew God had forgiven me. Yeah. I felt Him. I felt loved. I felt under that God had seen everything and forgiven me. I later understood what happened, but at the time I couldn't articulate it. But what I felt was that I had a father in heaven, that he loved me and the same love my father had shown me in life. God was showing me, but more um, that I was saved. And as I stood up that next morning, covered in my own tears and some of my clothes, I went to the mirror and I said, I'm a Christian,
0: I'm a Christian, and and I got it. So what was it about Tim Booker as a chaplain, more than just knowing your dad, that you felt that you could call him? Tim Booker was the most popular
1: chaplain in the Australian Army, Um, not because he softened his message, but because of his convictions. Um, There's a lot of chaplains who, would do things to impress people. They'd have a drink with the boys, or they'd have a smoke, or they'd swear a little bit, or they'd do these things. Not having a go at these guys, but I understand what they were doing. Tim would never do that. Uh, Tim was his own man. He was a man of deep conviction, gospel conviction about God. um, But also a man who judged no one, uh, who who showed grace and love to people in his talk with them, was a straight shooter, um, but did it in a way which was unique, which set him apart. In addition to that, he didn't do things to impress the boys, um, but it also helped that he happened to be fitter than most of the boys, stronger. He did parachuting with them, he ran with them, he did these things, but not to impress them, but because he loved to do them. He considered himself a soldier. Um, And so Tim Booker made an impact on um, me as a non-Christian in the sense that I saw him there. And I thought there was a part of me that thought, Uh, If I'm ever going to be a Christian, I want to be like that. That's the guy I want to be like. Um, And so when I had this crisis, I thought, my goodness, he's the only guy I can call. He's not going to judge me. He's not going to put me down. He's going to understand where I'm coming from, but he's going to give it to me straight. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Clearly life is going to change. What changed most?
1: Uh, The first two weeks of my Christian life, I was the most Christian man in Darwin. I was you know, just telling everyone, oh, I'm a Christian, and they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, oh, and I couldn't articulate, I couldn't. Um, but two weeks, one day later, I was back in the pubs. I got drunk, I kept fighting. I kept, and what began for me next, car was a journey, over, particularly over the next two years, of disentangling myself from my sinful, my, my, my behavior, which just rejected God again and again. For me, it was pretty extreme. Because my life looked like violence and, and uh, promiscuity and alcohol and, um, and so for me, moving away from those things, um, when, I, when I would slip up, it wasn't like, oh, I've, I've told a lie, it was, oh, I've fallen asleep drunk in the gutter, You know, this has happened, I've done these things again. But what I began to realise over time was two things happened. One for the first time ever, I began to hate the things that I did when I'd get drunk or when I'd chase a girl. Or when i Previously I'd been proud of those things, but something had switched inside of me. Now I looked at them and I just thought, what have I done? Yeah. And over time God used that to make me go, I don't want to do that anymore. It changed my desires. The second thing that happened to me primarily though, was I realized after around a year um, that if I was to stop um, being in these situations where I'd be drawn into my old way of living, I needed to replace them with something, something good, something wholesome and healthy spiritually. And so I joined a church. And I realized as I joined that church, smoking out the front before my first time, and I got tats everywhere and feeling, oh, they're going to hate me. They're going to judge me. The reception I received in this church was not that, it was that. And I realized that church wasn't a collection of perfect people showing off to each other, but actually a collection of sinful, broken people like me loving one another, gathered around God and um, joining a church and hating my sin um, was the path God gave me and later I discovered that He does for everyone. um, To to draw me out of this destructive behaviour I was in um, and actually live as a Christian and still being imperfect and still sinning and still stuffing up all the time. but realising as I do that, that God's love never ends, it never fails, um, and growing in that. You did more than join the church. What do you do now? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, uh, I ended up joining the family business. I thought, well, listen, this can't, you know, surely, <laughs> surely if I can get a job doing anything. No, I, after three years in the army as a Christian, um, I'd run out of people to tell Jesus, to, to talk to about Jesus. I was that guy, if you know what I mean. I just, I love telling people about Jesus. Um, and some of my friends became Christians. It was a wonderful time, but more than, more than that, uh, many of them were very hostile and very angry and aggressive, and, um, and I realized even when I was facing this anger and hostility, I didn't mind. It was okay. I didn't hate them back. I loved them, and I was happy, and it was going to be okay. Uh, I began to live for God, not for my reputation, and so I felt, uh, as I spoke to my pastor at church and, and my Christian friends, they said, listen, well, why don't you consider ministry. And I laughed. I thought, you're kidding. There's no way. And so two things happened. I actually said, well, I'm going to I'm going to apply for a ministry job to be a school chaplain. And I'm going to apply for the police force. Uh, and whatever one I get, I will do. And the police force got back to me first and said, oh, Mr. Jensen, I'm sorry, you've been arrested too many times. You can't join. Uh, but the ministry job got back to me and said, You're good to go." (laughs) And I was honest about my past and and I thought, wow. And so now I work as a pastor at a church um, and primarily I work in the field of um, telling non-Christian people about Jesus. Um, Having coffee, sitting down, having a beer, having a chat and just um, like one beggar showing another beggar where to get bread, uh, saying, hey, um, Jesus is the bread of life and let me tell you about it. It's a wonderful job.
0: You said you joined the family business. So what was the response to the family as you got a job within a church? Mate, I, um, <laughs> I remember telling my parents when I became
1: a Christian, and my dad uh, wept with joy. My mother uh, looked at me and said, Are you sure? Is this real? Is this? Um, and my parents have been my biggest supporters. Um, the, the biggest ones of saying, Dave, you know, if this is something that God has gifted you to do, I would love for you to do it um, and take it seriously and, and do it because it's the most important job that you could do. Um, God has blessed me with a, a beautiful wife now, Sam, and we've got four more little boys in addition to my two wonderful children. Um, and so I've been very, very blessed with my family saying, hold on, um, the most important thing we can do with our time is tell Aussies and others uh, the great news of Jesus and do it together. So,
0: yeah. So, Dave, this series is called Faith Runs Deep. How do you see faith running deep in Australia? You know,
1: okay, one of the things that strikes me, as I chat to my mates from the Army or my mates from footy, um, just the people I run into, my neighbours, is I'm not struck by hardened atheists in Australia. I hardly ever meet anyone who says, um, oh, have you seen Richard Dawkins' latest article, God is dead, and in fact, the opposite. Even the hardened soldiers that I'm friends with they believe in our God, a spirituality, a higher power. Um, I believe God has blessed Australia, uh, that the gospel is here, it's in the foundations of our nation um, and that many, many, many of our citizens um, know it. Whether they're following it and believe in it, it's not the issue here. They know it. They know that it's true. The question they're asking isn't, is this true? It's, is it relevant? Mm-hmm. Um, And so I believe when it comes to faith in this nation, um, there's an opportunity, a a great hope for Australia, um, that we're not dealing with a group of people who hate Christianity or hate God. We're actually dealing with people who don't understand Christianity, Mm. who don't understand who Jesus is and what He's done. And when I think of my job as an evangelist, that's all it is. It's not providing new information for people. It's just clarifying that old story that many of them know.
0: Thank you for joining me on this podcast as I unearth stories of faith in Australia. To watch the full Faith Runs Deep series and all Olive Tree Media content, go to olivetreemedia.com.au and sign up to the Watch Plus platform and partner with us today.